This is the Author Archive podcast. I'm David Freeman. In this edition, Robert Lacey, and this is one from the archive. Robert Lacey, the British historian, biographer, and writer on things royal. He is so much an expert on the royals, he's the historical consultant to Netflix for their series, The Crown. Robert wrote a book in 1977 to mark the Queen's Silver Jubilee called Majesty. Then 25 years later, he wrote another book to mark the Golden Jubilee. This book had two editions. It's the same book, but it was published under two different titles in America and here in the UK. Now, this is a conversation 20 years ago. The characters in the conversation are those that are so familiar. But the perspective is different because this is how it looked to Robert Lacey 20 years ago. So I'm sitting in the Langham Hotel in the West End of London, and in he comes. And I'm just going to play exactly what happened. It was a really good conversation and very prescient. He was looking forward to how it would look to us. So this is how it was. I was sitting in the Langham Hilton, and in walks Robert Lacey, and I press the record button. It's 50 years since Queen Elizabeth II took the throne on the 6th of February 2002. Robert Lacey has written a book to commemorate the event. In Britain, it's called Royal. In America, it's called Monarch. But it's the same book. Robert, you also wrote a book 25 years ago. Has the royal landscape changed much? Totally. I wanted to... uh, I've been pestered by publishers for years to repeat Majesty because it was such a success in 77. Though I say it myself, it was the first serious attempt to, to analyse the Queen and the monarchy. Until then, well, I, when I started that book, I wrote to everybody who'd ever written about the Queen before, and they were virtually all nannies and ex-butlers. And um, uh, I thought she's more important than that. The monarchy is more important than that in the British way of organising um, government but also in our heads uh, and in the imagination of the entire world. So I wrote Majesty. For many years, publishers said, come on, do a son of Majesty, do a daughter of Majesty. And I resisted. Um, And then, of course, by the mid-90s, it was impossible. There'd been the Anna Cerebralis, the breakdown of the marriages, above all, the death of Diana, which was, of course, a crucial moment. And I felt you had to look at the monarchy and the queen in a totally new way. So what's your brief to yourself for this one, then? This is an attempt at a double biography, a biography of the Queen to understand this mysterious, enigmatic woman who doesn't show emotion, um, who's, who, who, who exists in one way to be a model of family life and all of whose kids' marriages collapse. But more important, really, it's a look at the monarchy and its hold on our imagination. The book, in fact, goes back into Victorian times when you have Queen Victoria and for the first time you get the idea of tenderness being linked with the monarchy. Till then you have these fat old Germans who are ridiculed uh, and they're trying to run the country. With Victoria you get the beginning of this idea that the monarchy exists to excite our feelings, has no influence on policy, and you see that developing through Victoria's successors. And what is interesting about the Queen is that when she came to the throne 50 years ago, people talked about the new Elizabethan age. My argument is that you can't compare her to Elizabeth, Elizabeth I, most popular monarch um, in British history. She is much better compared to Victoria. 
um, the great white queen, the lover of the Commonwealth who loves visiting Africa, and um, who also now, at the age of 75, has these rather stolid features and plays very much the same role in modern Britain as Victoria did. And, and in fact, going into Jubilee, we're well into Victoria country, aren't we? Exactly. Um, one of the things I discovered is that Jubilees are comparatively recent festivals. For a Jewish festival, you say? It is originally a Jewish festival. Open your book of Leviticus and you will find talk of the Jobel, the ram's horn, celebrating every 50 years a period of renewal. You get the Catholic Church taking that up in the Middle Ages. As recently as 2000, there was a Roman Catholic Jubilee in Rome when uh, millions, literally millions of young uh, pilgrims went to Rome, got absolution for sins. And it was hijacked by the British um, royal family, or actually more properly by the British media, in 1809 when, with that love of anniversaries, which newspapers do, the new um, industrial revolution press all over the country suddenly woke up to the fact this mad old king we've got, who they never see, is coming up to 50 years. And so all the local papers vie with each other for jubilee celebrations. And so that was the first jubilee. And then, as you say, Queen Victoria took it over twice, 1887 after 50 years, 1897 after 60. But that, that German feeling still suffuses the early life of the Queen, because you say that some of the older stock in the, the royal family were still calling them the, those Scottish girls in a sort of derisory manner. Well, the turning point for the royal family in the 20th century comes in 1917, when there's a Russian revolution, monarchies are falling all over Europe, there's this terror uh, in the House of Windsor that the same thing's going to happen here. They actually start drawing up lists about what they can take with them if they have to go. And uh, there's a wonderful file, which I was lucky enough to be allowed to see in the Royal Archives, called Unrest in the Country, in which they clip all the stroppy articles from the left-wing papers, and they mark them with big um, red and uh, um, blue crayons for the king to read. So you can actually look at these documents and see what George V was reading. And here's this um, insurrectionary stuff, H.G. Wells saying, um, you know, we should be a republic. And under the pressure of this, they changed their name from, and nobody's quite sure what their name was, but it was something German, Saxe-Coburg, Gotha, Brunswick, Wettin, people argue. And they come up with this wonderful artefact, Windsor. I mean, they try Plantagenet, Tudor, they try out all the names. Windsor sounds great. So you get the first ever royal... I mean, lots of royal families have been usurpers and taken an old name. For an old family, a thousand years in descent to take a new name, um, I think shows their skill in reinvention. And yes, um, as, you, as you rightly say, um, these, the, the, these German connotations of, of privilege remain so that old German members of the royal family sniff, say, at the Queen Mother. One of the things that happens in 1917, the king says, we'll change the name and we'll have no more German brides. So what do they do? They find a nice Scottish bride, Elizabeth Bowes Lyon. But she, of course, in the eyes of the Germans and the Russians, is not royal. So they sniff at the British royal family as being only half royal. And the queen, of course, has only got half royal blood in her, her veins. But, of course, it's the ability of the Windsors to leave that sort of Teutonic nonsense behind which has allowed them to keep reinventing themselves and survive. It also comes out in this book that Prince Philip has more royal blood than she does. Yes, um, and also that he has this wonderful vision of what he should be doing. Um, I interviewed a, an old naval mate of his who was called to be told the, name of the, to, to, told the details of the engagement. And Philip said in this curious sort of pompous way, 
my life's duty now is to support my wife. Now, he came from this background of royal blood related to practically everybody in Europe. The king of Sweden used to send him a pound every Christmas and he saved up the pounds and bought himself a bicycle, that sort of thing. Um, and, uh, but coming from that European background, because as we know, he's not really Greek, but he's not really German or Danish or Russian or anything. He's got a mixture of all these things and basically lived most of his childhood in, in France in exile. Um, he he is, is the one inside the royal family who wields much more power than people realize and in some way maintains a lot of these old standards. He also dances to Zorba the Greek, you tell us. Well, not to Zorba. The, he does a Zorba the Greek-like dance and... Um, this is a bit undignified for the Queen, and so uh, he's famous at royal parties for kicking up his heels with pretty young women, um, which has led to these rumours of um, unfaithfulness, which I examine in the book. He has actually addressed these himself. I mean, he's so open about what he and his friends call his flirtations. Um, he insists he never goes to bed with them. Um, he has a curious rationale for this, or maybe a logical one if you come from that particular strata of society, that... Um, I wouldn't go to bed with these women, he says, because um, the Queen has no way of retaliating, so she can't go to bed with anyone else. <laughs> but he, get, he went to that, it sounds rather dubious and racy, the Thursday night club? No, well, there you are, you see, you're, you're guilty of what we all do. It wasn't the Thursday night club, it was the Thursday lunchtime club. Better story. <laughs> exactly. It happened on a Thursday. Exactly. <laughs> he used to go to Soho, den of wickedness and vice, every Thursday for lunch in Wheeler's Restaurant, where... If, and you're old enough to remember, you could get sole done with about 30 different sauces or place done with all sorts of... And they used to drink cheap house white wine and there were people like Larry Adler, James Robertson Justice, David Niven. And they were lads about town who had a pretty raucous time. Now, the suggestion is that Prince Philip would then go off from lunch to a flat somewhere and meet a young lady. There's no evidence for that, but of course... Journalist that I am, I can't help repeating it. But you do say that he, he did go out. That there's, what some, there's a story about him turning up in a sports car with a woman, and, and he's not, she's not introduced, yep. but she's obviously upper class, and he does it several times. And, he, and you say that he holds his head in a particular way. Yes. And, and what would the Queen feel like if her husband, that she likes for holding his head in this particular way, knew that he was doing it with somebody else? Exactly. Well, I've asked her friends about this. At the moment, uh, Prince Philip's uh, companion is called Penelope Lady Romsey. There's no secret about it. She's a great enthusiast of carriage driving. She's a very elegant, uh, young, well, youngish lady in her late 40s, early 50s. Daughter in, gra daughter, granddaughter in law, I must get this right, of Lord Mountbatten. She looks very much like Princess Alexandra, who used to be a great companion of, of Prince Philip's. And when I went through this book with Prince Philip's own staff, because when I write and I'm lucky enough to get close to people, um, I actually go back to their staff and check what I've said. And I had this section about the way in which all through the summer um, Prince Philip is out at these carriage riding competitions, um, spending weekends with um, Lady Romsey. He looked at it, he said, oh, you, you've got that wrong. You've got to make clear that in these house parties they stay at, there are lots of other people there as well, so I hope you'll put that in. So I did. So that's all right, apparently. I mean, I talked to friends of his who used to play polo with him, and they said it was extraordinary. They believe what he says. They said women would throw themselves at him because he's a very 
um, attractive, sexy man. At 80, he's still vibrant. And you can see why the Queen went for him. You know, he was so much more... But when she was 13. When she was 13, she fell in... I mean, people say this woman has no emotions. 13, she falls in love with, with a young man and, and, and uh, stays in love with him. For, I just wanted to finish that point mm. about Prince Philip, that these women would throw themselves at him. And these polo, debauched polo companions of his, who might themselves go off to a bedroom somewhere, said they never saw him do it. That he always has this sense, ultimately, of his dignity and, and, and keeping his position. When you're writing about this family, how close can you get to the actual key players? Well, that's the difficulty. I mean, that, that's how 25 years of, of, of research helps. I mean, my first book, Majesty, I got a lot of help from Lord Mountbatten. And he was always talking to me about Prince Charles's normal, healthy sex life. And I didn't quite know how to fit that into Majesty, and it didn't sort of fit with the times. But he told me then how, you know, it's very important for Prince Charles to, to get to know the world and to get to know the women of the world. And he told me how he was using Broadlands, his estate down in Hampshire, as a place where Prince Charles can go for the weekends with young women. We now know that one of those young women was a young lady called Camilla Shand, uh, courting a young Andrew Parker Bowles. And that was the beginning of the affair. So to answer your question, you know, it takes a long time to get close to these people. The Queen and Prince Philip don't have very many really close friends. So actually, if you crack that circle, you can get close to them. But although I have met and talked to the Queen and Prince Philip, I cannot say that I have interviewed them because uh, the Queen certainly does not give interviews. Um, and uh, if one has spoken to Prince Philip, it all has to be off the record. If the royal, uh, if the royal firm as an institution is doing all right. How much of that doing all rightness is down to this one woman? I mean, someone described her to me as an ordinary woman doing an extraordinary job. That's a very good way of, of, of putting it. I think the Golden Jubilee, which starts really on February the 6th, 2002, is going to be an enormous celebration that's bigger than the millennium, uh, which was, of course, was rather a damp squib for two reasons. One, everybody was looking forward to the millennium for far too long. And um, the, ju the Jubilee organisers have been rather clever in keeping quiet about um, what actually is going to happen. But the other thing is that this is going to be based on a person. This is going to be based on this woman, uh, the second. 50 years of duty, of service. At 10 years or so distance from the Anasarebalis and the breakdowns of those marriages, I think people are coming to see how, no, she's not a perfect mother, but who is? And a lot of the problems of her parenting came from her sort of World War II insistence that the job came first. If the kids had to stay at home with just nannies while she went off to Australia and New Zealand and all the other string of islands in the Pacific that um, you know, represent British greatness, then that was it. And I think the, the dedication she's shown has struck a real chord with people. And I think we've seen recently with the problems over Prince Harry how actually the vulnerability and problems of an emblem family, like the royal family, can be very useful and actually stir people's hearts a bit more than the old idea that they're absolutely perfect and there's nothing wrong with them and that um, we should all um, imitate their sports jackets and cavalry twills. Queen Victoria thought that maybe she did have a political role, didn't she? She liked people to know what she thought. Mm. This one says, no, I'm not a politician. So what is the role? You say, use that term, emblem family. Um, but we don't want to be like them, do we? No. 
Um, well, there, is, there are several roles. There's obviously the role she plays representing us overseas. And isn't it interesting now how Mr. Blair, um, from a party that's thought of as anti-monarchist, has suddenly discovered great virtues in the British monarchy and, and the British Commonwealth in particular, and the British armed forces, which owe its crack discipline to the fact they serve the crown and not some tawdry politician. So that's the foreign role. At home, she has to preside over, obviously, the impartiality of the constitutional monarchy. She's done that perfectly. She was, but she's also, inside the country, she's in charge of another very important strand of national life, which is philanthropy and public service. She was once asked, what's your most important work of all the things you do? And she said, investitures, which is the complicated word for the prize givings, which happen every week at the palace, when 130 or so, 3,000 a year, district nurses, tax inspectors, charity workers go and get their CBEs, their MBEs, their OBEs. The weekend before, she takes away the list. She reads the brief on each person, what they've done, how they've helped the community. She highlights it in marker. She gives that to her equerry. And as each person comes up, the equerry whispers those words into her ear. That prompts the two questions she's got ready for this particular person. She asks you the first question. If you give a good answer, she'll ask you the second question. If you're embarrassed or fluff, like apparently Cliff Richard was, and just gobble, gobble nonsense, um, she'll dismiss you with a polite smile and put you out of your misery. So she exists in the country to encourage that whole strand of, of life. And then there is this other aspect, what you, you mentioned is the emblem family. Their problems written out on the large screen are there for us to debate. If the Prime Minister's son falls down drunk in the street, we're not allowed to talk about it. That's a private matter. If Prince Harry is caught drinking drugs, uh, drinking underage or experimenting with drugs, then that's fair game and we all have, we're all allowed to talk about it. I find it, I consider it very healthy. The only thing I think we have to bear in mind is that in the future, people like Prince William and Prince Harry will say, what is the point of life in which uh, every fault is fair game for everybody to discuss and analyse? Is it a job worth doing? And of course, the great drama of the 20th century was the abdication, when we had a King Edward VIII who said, the game's not worth the candle, I want to do it with the woman I love. And of course, that, to go full circle, is how we got the Queen, um, who was shifted up in the succession. Prince Philip, when he goes out, he likes to mix with showbiz types. Diana liked to mix with showbiz types. There does seem to be some kind of affinity between these two worlds. Is there, is there really one? Well, that again is one of the themes of the book. I mean, the early chapters show the way in which actually royalty led the way for modern celebrity. Queen Victoria was the first international celebrity. Her image everywhere, postcards. Her second jubilee of 1897 was, came two years after cinema had been invented. One of the, the most... You know, earliest newsreels were taken of Queen Victoria's Jubilee. There were 30 different newsreel cameras down the route, different companies. And it was, in fact, for her Jubilee that the panning shot was invented. Until then, cameras had all been fixed. Knowing she was going to go past, they come up with this panning device, which, of course, is now commonplace. In the 1920s, the future Edward VIII, Prince of Wales, was an international celebrity long before film stars. Um, and one of the themes of the book is the way in which, A, this developed, but B, with Diana, it proved a sort of catch-22, and the monarchy tripped over itself. And we saw, actually, in the days after the death of Diana, 
the conflict between the old, unchanging view of the monarchy, represented by the Queen, and the touchy-feely um, celebrity side of the monarchy, which Diana had always represented. Your book starts with Diana and it finishes with Diana. Is she that important as a figure? I think she is. Um, there have been a lot of books recently demythologizing her as a person, as an individual, talking about her psychological problems, um, her pers borderline personality disorder. As I try and point out, her husband had another personality disorder, which was, of course, spoiled prince disorder. Um, but so as a person, it's easy to denigrate her, and I don't want to be you know, insulting to her memory. But I think in terms of what she symbolizes, she is absolutely crucial to the story because she represents everything the British monarchy aimed at for more than uh, two centuries. And it was discovered in Diana that it wasn't enough. And now in the new century, with these sons, and particularly William, with this eerie echo of what she looks like, we've got a future of the monarchy in which Diana is physically embodied, um, but where the challenges she represented still remain. If you look 25 years ahead, with that ghost of Diana still here, presumably the Queen Mother will not be with us in 25 years' time, but the Queen might be. So what, do you, what would the next book, and you will be, so you'll be writing it, what, what will be the lead stories then? Well, the lead stories then, I'm sure, will be um, what's happened to William and um, the problems he has found in life, that we all, all the stumbles. Um, of course, in 20, 25 years' time, William will no longer be a teenage dreamboat. He will be struggling with the same problems of um, getting into middle age, which his father has had to cope with, and which, of course, many a young, beautiful celebrity has had to, to cope with. Um, I think by then, Queen, uh, the Queen, though, will be even more of a Victorian figure, so that in that way, many of the themes we're looking at now will, will still prevail. I wouldn't be in the slightest bit surprised, though, if both, and I'm not saying this just to be provocative, if both William and Harry don't shrug their shoulders and say that they're not um, interested in it. Um, and in that case, we might well have another woman on the throne um, or in line for the throne in, in the shape of Beatrice, the um, eldest daughter of uh, the present Duke of York, who, of course, is exactly the same position um, as uh, Elizabeth was. And I'd say that might not be a bad thing for two reasons. One, women seem to do this job much better than men. Um, and uh, uh, secondly, someone who is not actually born knowing that they are going to be the monarch of the future, as the Queen was, as George VI was, as her grandfather George V was. Those most successful monarchs came into it from the side by accident. Um, and uh, uh, so if we had another one like that, I think that could be all to the good. What about Charles? Charles, I find um, an absolutely um, enigmatic and infuriating character. I mean, he has great good impulses, um, but, uh, you know, his, his marriage to Diana and the rapidity with which he abandoned it to, to go back to his old love, I think has, has hit the monarchy a blow from which it is still recovering. On the other hand, I think that uh, his impulses are basically positive. Um, and, of course, really don't get enough credit. I mean, there he is working away in inner cities with young people, doing all sorts of um, incredibly valuable things behind the scenes on, on the land with farmers coming into his own during foot and mouth. 
people sort of shrug their shoulders about that and focus on Camilla. Um, and I think that perhaps is unfair. But on the other hand, it's his misfortune that he's got still got to deal with. Who's the book for, finally, Robert? For fans of the Royals? It's for, it's obviously for fans of the Royals, um, but in a way that I hope will help them look at it in a new light. Um, not see the monarchy as a sort of elite institution, but realise that it's been created by us, that in a way we've got to design a monarchy that reflects what we the people want. And in that sense, it's also for people who criticise the monarchy. To remind them that back in 1936, there was a vote about in Parliament. Having got rid of Edward VIII, left-wing MPs said, well, let's get rid of the whole shooting match. There were just six people who voted for that and 600 who voted against. And my point there is not to say Britain is 100% monarchist, because clearly today, just as doctors are less figures of authority than they were, just as teachers are less figures of authority, so a figure of authority like the Queen finds it more difficult to survive. What I'm saying is that the remedy for those who dislike the monarchy is in our own hands. We can change it at any time. We can abolish it. We can modify it. We can say we want women to inherit, not men. Um, it's entirely our artefact. We live in a republic where we have chosen to retain this, this remnant of our past, which I think is a very positive, helpful, fruitful remnant. Royal is the book in the UK. If you're in America, it's called Monarch. Monarch. But it's the same book and it's by Robert Lacey. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you, David. That was Robert Lacey talking to me in 2002, one from the archive. This is the Author Archive podcast.